if you get into the Wayback Machine and dial it all the way to March 9th of 2019, you'll see the very first episode of this show. It was five random questions with Aaron Bougie, a local Marlboro celebrity at that time. And the entire premise was just off the wall, things that had almost nothing to do with bike racing. But because we're bike racers, somehow they always do have something to do with bike racing. But it was really just about celebrating the interestingness of one particular bike racer. The show evolved from that point on time, as all things do. There was the lightning round in some of these episodes, and then questions kind of got ditched in favor of broader, larger storytelling. But at its base, this show has always been about finding people who we believe are interesting and have special stories or things that they need to share with our community and in giving them a platform to do it. I've always wanted to do a show like the one that's being done today, which is less about a broad story and more about just topics of conversation that I have about bikes with somebody who knows the bike racing world much better than me and having his or her take on those topics. So little connection between each topic, but within each topic is basically me sitting here like a noob asking questions of somebody who knows way more about the sport than I do, and then just embracing everything that they give me and soaking up that intelligence and sharing it with you. My name is Rob Kelly. This is Criterium Nation, a show about life lived one corner at a time. The Criterium queries is something that I'm hoping that we can do more of. It's going to take your help, for sure, because I need questions for Zach Allison of Source Endurance, who is our guest here on Criterium Queries. He is the person that I know who knows the most about bike racing, who has committed the most amount of time to learning about the sport and to exploring the various different attributes of it. Do not take him at face value when he says that he's made every mistake possible. I feel that I have made mistakes that he has not yet made just by virtue of being, you know, a little over 10 years older than him. But the origin of this show is really a series of emails that I have previously sent to Zach as my coach, asking them really kind of off the wall questions like, why should I be on a team? Or am I really riding the best tires right now? Is there something more that I can do? And he would give me these incredible answers. And I was just like, wait, wait, we need to get these answers recorded and shared with other people because I am not the only person who's got these questions. And I know that others will benefit from it and will really appreciate your voice, Zach, when you say these things to these people. And so here we are with the Criterium Queries. This show is a part of the Wide Angle Podium network of shows, the world's only top-tier collection of high-quality independent cycling content. Head on over to WideAnglePodium.com please become a subscriber, help financially support this content creator-owned effort, and also check out everything else that's going on on the network. For example, Bill Shiken on Cyclocross Radio just put out an incredible episode 
which wasn't really an episode at all. It was just a roundtable discussion with some transgender athletes talking about the present situation that they are facing in their community and we, as part of their bike racing community, are also facing. It's a great compendium to the work that we did last week with Tiffany Thomas from Philly Bike Expo. So check it out. Enjoy that conversation and hopefully you learn something because Lord knows I definitely did. Head on over to YouTube, check out the work that Bill and Matt are doing over there. It's educational, it's entertainment, it's what gets me through my morning coffee and cereal. It is just pure joy. This show is, of course, brought to you by Source Endurance. If you want to learn more about Source Endurance, source-e.net will take you to their website. It'll give you a full lineup of everything that you need to take a look at within the confines of the services that they they offer, nutrition, coaching, all of it. Sometimes, like with Zach and I, it's just pure fun and conversation. Definitely worth your time. Head on over sourceE.net. Use the co- promo code CriteriumNation at checkout for $50 off. That again is Criterium Nation, $50 off your first month of service with Source Endurance. And we've got a special note from one of Source's athletes that I think you should listen to. I knew I needed coaching in order to enhance setting realistic goals with regional aspirations. I chose Kristen Arnold based on her previous nutrition and dietetics work. Building rapport was easy as pie, and I knew I wanted to take my cycle cross and mountain biking more seriously. I've been racing somewhat competitively for the last 14 years, and I knew if I wanted sustainable results, I needed an excellent coach and dietitian. I started working with Kristen in October 2020, so it's been a short time, and now I can sustain efforts that I could only do on what we would call a good day. I'm taking steps forward and zero steps back. I wanted to make the raw materials into a solid skill set. There's a balance of cycling, strength, nutrition, recovery, and the key ingredient, communication. Our weekly check-ins make the difference and help me achieve my goals. The first podcast I ever listened to was Neil deGrasse Tyson, Star Talk. I don't know why it was the first podcast that I ever listened to, but it was the one that was my gateway into podcasting. And he would occasionally do this thing called Cosmic Queries, where he would answer random questions from his audience, from his listeners, from people who come around. And he would do it in a semi-funny way. He also had a comedian who was with him who could help co-host it. I do not have Neil deGrasse Tyson levels of intelligence and subject matter when it comes to bike racing, but you, Zach, you are my Neil deGrasse Tyson. You are the Cornell-educated astrophysicist and head of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. What's it like being that guy in bike racing today? Wow, that's um, that's a lot. I think some days it's maybe a burden, <laughs> but I guess for the most part, I think my knowledge of cycling comes from making all the mistakes. So partially my favorite thing about being that person is sharing knowledge and having other people not have to make mistakes that I've made from, you know, there's so many from (laughs) trying to run 22 mil silk track tires in a TT in Utah 
and flatting, obviously, because you would flat that tire every single time. So, you know, just kind of teaching people things that are like, oh, fundamentally, this makes sense. But practically, it's just not going to work out for you. Consistent with this criterium queries theory that we've got going on here, we've come up with five broad topics to talk about today each one lasting approximately 10 minutes in length, and we'll just switch from topic to topic. My goal here is just to ask one question and to let you run. We're gonna start first and foremost with something that came up this weekend. As you know, I stalk Frank Cundiff's results, and now that I know his girlfriend Mallory is at his races, I get to live stalk Frank's results. It's perfectly acceptable and it's a part of the rivalry that he and I have. He got into this race down in Lynchburg, Virginia this weekend. And as I'm texting back and forth with Mallory about the race, she brings up that there were five or six guys up the road. They had about a minute, minute and a half on the road. And the breakaway consisted of four guys or five guys from the same team and then one other guy from another team that was well represented in the group. And I said to her, well, sounds like that break's gone. And she's like, well, no, no, there's about 10 or 12 guys who are just solo riders. Why can't they all work together to bring this break back? And I was like, Mallory, solo riders tend to not do well working together with each other in a race. It's just the way it works. Teams exist in road racing so that they can pool resources. One of the things that you and I have talked about offline has been this topic of team and what value team has in the road racing world and why people should want to be on teams and road and crit racing as opposed to maybe cross or gravel or something else. What do you see as the value or how somebody should approach is probably a better way of saying it, joining a team? I think it depends on what kind of person you are to start. And then there's various levels of how teamy teams are even. So if you look at Gutenplan coaching USA crit team, like it's kind of a team of privateers. Like I'm not bashing, you know, Dave or his program whatsoever. And he fields a full team, which is more than a lot of the other teams can say for most of their races. But I don't know how much they share as far as amenities or winnings or anything like that. So some teams are just made up of, of privateers and in the race, maybe you just don't pull back a guy that's wearing the same Jersey as you. And that's kind of maybe the only rule. (laughs) Whereas on the most coherent of the teams, like I think you would put cliff bar pretty high up as closeness of teammates. And that is really starts with, actually liking each other and being friends off the bike or being friends, not in the race. And then everything in between is just sort of varying levels of professionalism where you can hate someone and still be there to get a result with the team. UHC, I think was a great example. I think I probably bring them up every episode, but like there are guys on the team that got along great. And there are guys on the team that probably didn't get along really well. And like, you're there to do a job. So I don't know if USA crits as a series has a lot of those teams yet where they're there on a professional level and you don't have to like someone to be a cog in the wheel and lead them out. But in cycling, like a lot of it is you're on the same bike and you're on the same equipment and you're on the same wheels. 
um, and that's provided by the team. And then the team has a common marketing goal to outside of results. So if you're going to have six guys on a team and you're going to try and do right by the team and get a, get the best support you can, then you're going to all be on the same equipment and you're going to sort of go to equipment sponsors and say that you're trying to field a USA crit team of six or 10 or 12 or whatever, and just kind of share amenities in that sense. But why should I want to be on a team? Why should I look at CS Velo, Legion of LA, Butcher Box on the men's side and say, you know what? I want to be a part of this organization. I want to be a part of it because X. Or if you dial it back to an amateur or master's level, you know, you look at your local teams, like my own personal team, DC Velo, and you say, I really want to wear the same clothes as these guys and I want to get together with them and go to these races. I'm just wondering, you know, what it is about bike racing on the roadside that requires you to do it, but also that there is that drive to get onto a team. I think it's definitely more fun to race with a team or race as a team. But I think a lot of the drive for people at this point is someone that's not on a team might be newer to the sport or they're looking to move up or they're looking to get better support. And they're actually just looking for the best deal they can get as far as physical support and sponsorship on a team. Like a team is basically a job in a company at a certain level. You're applying to teams with your Palmars. So you're basically applying to jobs. So like if you're a, an executive CMO and you're looking to you're looking at different jobs, you're going to apply to an executive position at a fast food chain. And it's like, well, I'm not really into fast food. I don't believe in it. I don't mesh with their ethos of that company. So then maybe you want to apply to that brand to be a CMO at that company. But so maybe you're more outdoorsy and you align with outdoor industry stuff. So, I mean, I think for a lot of people that are looking to move up, they look at who's on the team. Do they get along with people on that team? Do they get a bike? Do they get a, do they get support? Do they get a stipend? Do they get X, Y, and Z? And then they're, they're striving to sort of meet that goal for themselves. At a baseline level, you're not going to get into a USA create without a team. You can't just privateer, you know, singularly as a rider alone, get into a USA create. But there are a lot of teams, like I said, made up of individuals that are sort of constant guest riding teams. Um, so you can, as an individual, go to a USA crit, but it's also just kind of awkward to go to a race alone. I've definitely done it or had to do it, and it's just not that much fun at all. So like as a baseline, you know, a team is a group of friends that enjoy traveling together also, and like you're not alone in a hotel you can kind of like have someone to bounce ideas off of. But then at the end of the day, you're there to race your bike. So you have like racing as a team, I think is a totally different topic even, but racing as a team is really the only way to get results. Like you don't really see unless there, unless there's a massively fast individual that's also really good at tactics. It's more rare that you see someone do really well without any teammates. What is the right attitude? And I know this could open up a huge world of topics approaching being on a team when you're an individual is it i want to see what you what the team can do for me or should it be what i can do for the team definitely what you can do for the team but then also what that team's you know goal is 
for themselves, whether it's like um, kind of doing brand outreach for a specific brand, like you have to fit into that, you know, butcher box has had vegetarians on the team here and there. And I think that that's kind of like funny in a way. <laughs> it's like, you know, like you're really pumped on the support you get, but like you don't eat meat. So like why that team? Uh, um, but then the calendar that you race as an individual, you as a bike racer, you have goals and your goals might be to win a criterium, to win this criterium or this criterium suits you really well. And this team will take you to that race. Um, if you're a climber and you need to do Gila to get a result, there's only so many teams that go to Gila. So if you're looking at what team that you're going to join of the teams that you mesh with and the director knows who you are, and they kind of, they need a rider such as you, if they don't have a climber, and they're going to Gila, then that's going to be way more likely um, a positive path for you to take to to have the calendar that you want and sort of increase your results and then look for a better team and better support and kind of keep keep pushing your your abilities. So let's switch gears now to a different topic. And this one I know is a personal favor of yours. It is going to be May really soon. And in 2021, that actually means real-world racing. Real-world crit racing is back. We're looking at Armed Forces. We're looking at Tulsa. We're looking at the whole USA Crits calendar, Sonny King, all of it. Tires. In cross, in gravel, in a lot of different other disciplines within cycling, there's so many discussions about tires and tires and tires. And we tend not to think about tires when it comes down to crit racing. I don't know. We, maybe we decide that it's more important to think about aerodynamics of wheels or of skin suits or something like that. But I know that you are passionate about tire theory when it comes down to crit racing. And that runs the gambit of tubulars, the old school sew up tubulars, tubeless, and clinchers. So fill us in on this tire theory of Zach Allison's. I think my current take is looking at sports that have way more money and are arguably more successful at spectatorship and and pushing the boundaries of technology and using MotoGP as an example or any you know high level motorsport their tires don't last the entire race. Their tires are per so performance oriented that you have to pit and get a whole new set of tires. And if you don't, and you're running a tire that's hard enough or, or will last you the whole race, then you're going to be going slower than everyone else. And why isn't cycling anywhere near that? Why are there guys in crits on gator skins or why are there people that are training or why, why is someone racing on a tire that they can also train on for thousands of miles. It's not a race tire then. So the technology is not there yet. Looking at like rolling resistance, you know, tubeless tires are better. They have, they are faster, but then they're, they're heavier than a really, really light, really, really supple tire with a latex tube because they have to be able to hold sealant inside of them. So like there's all these issues and conundrums in a way of like how we're going to make better tires and historically people don't want to spend money on a tire that's going to last them 200 miles or like a few criteriums um, but i think crits are kind of the first genre of racing in the world tour where you have a follow car with a whole extra bike behind you at all times is another way to get, to get around the issue of flatting um, though we don't have to run 
training tires and crits. If you flat, you get a free lap. I think we're going to see tire manufacturers sort of making like the fastest tire. The fastest tire is going to like start happening more frequently. Like this is the new fastest tire. This is the new fastest tire by so-and-so. And then we're going to get to the point where like we understand that the performance gains from having a tire that's going to last you a few criteriums is really high. Um, and that'll only be at the professional level for a while. So you're not going to have, you know, cat threes aren't really going to want to buy a tire that's going to last them two criteriums. I think the gap between training and racing tires is going to expand. Stuff will probably stay tubeless, but the current situation where like you you're running a tubeless tire and you run it for the four weeks, you know, you're racing on the weekends and you run that tire for thousands of miles, but it's called a race tire. And then a company will say, Oh, this tire has such and such flat protection. We do a bunch of flat protection. It's like, I don't need flat protection. I want to go fast. (laughs) So uh, I think they'll start changing and I'm, you know, that's for crits and road racing. And um, it's just such a super specific application compared to gravel where you have to have a certain amount of flat protection and you're looking at more rolling resistance and grip and straight line tread pattern for speed and cornering lugs and things like that. So every different genre of cycling is a completely different conversation on what a fast tire is or what makes a tire fast. What about the issue of 23s, 25s, 28s, 32s? You know, as disc brakes are becoming more and more of a thing in crit racing, we have to, or we can now start thinking about different sizes. I mean, I remember that big jump where we went from, you know, a 21 millimeter tire to a 23. And then all of a sudden people started talking about 25s and you're like, that's crazy talk. We've all heard about contact patches and the fact that there is a greater or lesser deflection of the tire as it gets wider. But then you also have to look at aerodynamics of a 28 millimeter tire versus a 25 millimeter tire. What do you think about that? I think the aerodynamic aspect of it has kind of been settled for road in a way. So um, there's a lot of research, but like the Silka Diaries, which I think I forget the guy's name, but he um, formerly worked for Zip. He goes through a lot of, think of them separately, right? So he goes through a lot of aerodynamics of tires and a tire is nearing its fastest or least amount of aerodynamic drag when it's, when the rim is 105% of the tire width. So like, in line or the tire slightly narrower than the rim is a fast shape. So if you're running a 21 millimeter tire on a 24 mil internal, that's going to be pretty fast aerodynamically. And then it's a 21 millimeter tire at, you know, hundred to 110 PSI is not going to have very good rolling resistance. So when you start looking at the whole package combined, of uh, you want to be able to corner and go this fast through a corner in a crit, um, and not have a really heavy tire or have a lot of rolling resistance, then you start narrowing it down to at this point, 25 to 28 millimeter tire. And then you're looking at rim width to make sure that your rim is, you know, matching or a little bit wider. So all of these brands in the, you know, pushing 23 to 20, you know, eight millimeter internal rim widths, it just makes a more aerodynamic tire and wheel integration. And then you're running a 25 that might measure 26 or 27, but it's faster aerodynamically. And then if you're at the right tire pressure, then you're not um, 
hurting your rolling resistance. So if you think about it, you know, if you go through all those things, so like what's aerodynamically fast and then what's fast rolling resistance where you can still corner fast and then what's light for a criterium or a road race, you're ending up at, at with the current technology around a 25 mil, 25 to 27 millimeter tire and then having a wheel that's wide, um, a, a wide rim width for aerodynamics. Um, and then, you know, at 165 pounds, I'm running around 70 to 75 PSI in a dry race. That's, that's the basis of tire theory. And then, so figuring out what your ideal rim width and tire width is for speed and aerodynamics, and then you can get, you know, nitpicky on, uh, tread compound tread pattern, which, you know, tread pattern is, I think there's not a ton of research on tread pattern. There are like tread pattern aerodynamic stuff coming out on like figuring out how to break up the air around the actual edge of the rubber tire, which is pretty interesting. But yeah, I think it all kind of, it all kind of points to just developing tires that are racing tires and developing tires that are training tires and not compromising on either one. I'm just, I just get like, <laughs> I laugh every time I see someone that is like, man, I love this tire. It's really great all around. I've put 5,000 miles on it and I race crits on it. And it's just like, that sounds gross to me. <laughs> like you you might flat, that's fine. Go to the pit, but like, I'm going to rip a turn and like, I'm not going to lose the rear or high side or whatever, you know, you, you're just limiting yourself by trying to do a crit on on a on a training tire and like I'm not magic I'm doing things that other people can't do in crits but um, it's from skill but also part of skill is being able to trust your equipment like if I'm fully leaned out in the last lap going into the last turn and passing people on you know whether it's Max's high roads um, or Envy's new road tires like I have trust in that equipment that I can at least go as fast as the person in front or behind me. And the best thing is envy for you with your association with cliff or my association, my association with zip. These companies have resources online for tire pressure and to, to help you figure out what goes with what you need. The beauty of this conversation, what I'm learning here is that we're almost going back to that old view that we used to have where you had your aluminum or your your dedicated training set. In my case, it was Mavic Open Pros, 28, triple lace in the back, blah, blah, blah. I had this whole formula built out for it. And then you'd switch to your carbon tubulars. That was, you know, 1999, 2000 version of Rob Kelly, who would run those sort of things. It looks like we're, we're heading in a direction that's similar to that, where everything is specific. You have to start thinking specifics for specific purposes. And there's a great article I once read about tire pattern or tread pattern in road versus tread pattern in mountain bike or cross, where it said that on the road side, the ground, the pavement that you ride on is so uneven anyways. There's so many microscopic little this and that, that the tread pattern isn't what's performing. It's the compound of the rubber that's performing. So a lot to talk about here, a lot more to unpack, but we're at the 10 minute point and we need to switch topics. So let's switch topics and start talking less about criterium racing and more about doing things to make you a better sports 
person or doing things to make you a better athlete or doing things to make you love sport more. So one thing that I've talked about repeatedly on this show has been the fact that I'm now going to try racing cross this year and I'm really super excited about doing it in the fall. You've got me out there now riding on gravel as a means of training and trying to break up the mental stress of constantly, you know, hitting the same roads over and over again. So what can you tell people about getting out of your rut, sort of speak, of doing the same road ride or focusing exclusively on road events or focusing exclusively on the road bike versus trying to be a more rounded athlete? I think you were on the right track talking about mostly it being a mental thing, um, especially for me, but it's, it's not necessarily just better outright or better physiologically to do a bunch of other sports. I have been doing extracurriculars where I lift my hands over my head or lift things up for long periods of time. And I probably have an extra four or five pounds in my shoulders alone than I normally do this time of year. So it's not just, it's not doing other sports or other things to necessarily be faster on the bike. Um, you know, like Nibali famously gets carried off his bike after Tour de France stages and, and like to not walk around and just to be very, very specific on the bike, you can get really, really fast. There are maybe more injuries that you can fall into that way. Um, but the mental game is really the biggest portion and kind of the last frontier, honestly, of sport in some ways. So if you get really tired of doing the same routes or of riding the same bike and you're just in the point of your annual training plan where you have to keep gaining CTL, it doesn't change the CTL. It doesn't change the fitness that you're gaining if you're riding a gravel bike on an endurance ride or a cross bike on an endurance ride. And especially with COVID and just people traveling less, like I've been doing some skate skiing and like, I'm not that good at it. So my heart rate is absolutely pinned for <laughs> like 30 minutes, just kind of falling with style on these little skinny French fry skis. So yeah, I think that that like makes me, I can get more intervals done. Um, if I do that skate ski session, instead of doing a 90 minute trainer session, I'm more willing to do, you know, three interval sessions a week on the trainer if I'm not doing like endurance rides on the trainer and I can kind of mix it up with other sports, but the mental game I think is the biggest part of that. What do you think are some good suggestions for people on things that they should think about? You know, obviously it's a criterium specific audience. So we're talking about people who need a certain level of endurance, but also need to be punchy or have bursts of power. What are some of the things that you think that, people who race crits should look at or think about that might be out of the outside of the box, like completely off a bike. Starting out with gym, like strength training is underrated and not enough people do it. Um, you've had like kind of an incredible 18 months of strength training and then building out your own home gym and it looks super rad. So, I mean, that's not outside of the box at all. Like strength training is just something that everyone should do and figure out how to do it throughout the year and not just stop when you start racing totally outside the box, I think would be like join an ultimate Frisbee league or, um, Mills joined a dodgeball league and like, just 
you gain coordination, <laughs> you're sprinting, you're getting a little bit of impact, like you're going to maintain bone density, you're going to be an all-around athlete. If you think you're an all-around athlete and you're a cyclist, now like try and, you know, do an ultimate, just go throw something and you'll be sore the next day. <laughs> so, um, there's just stuff that prevents injury and keeps you fresh like that, that I really enjoy. Um, and then I get too caught up in it. Like one year on the 4th of July, I was magically in town and there was this, there was a, like a 50 yard slip and slide. And Whitney and I probably hit the slip and slide at least 50 times and we could not walk at all the next day. But a week from then, I felt really, really good. And like, you know, a week later I, I basically beat myself up and then like, I, I honestly felt pretty poppy and it's, it was basically a hardcore plyo workout. So, I mean, you can kind of do anything, but just, you know, you'll find like that you're not getting, if you get too caught up in riding every single day and you're like, Oh, I got to get 30 CTL today, 30 TSS points today on training peaks for my recovery ride and this and that once you sort of get further on in your career, you realize that like that kind of 30 TSS point black hole, you know, training day doesn't really do much, but it's more about like being active and being happy and having fun. And then you're going to have better results. Going a little bit on the opposite direction here, the value of doing nothing. If you recall, there was a couple of weeks ago that I woke up on a Saturday and, you know, Saturdays are kind of religious holy days for bike racers. You know, you work all week long and you've got only a couple of hours or an hour or something like that during the work week to ride every day and you struggle and fight and then you get to Saturday and it's like Saturday, thou must ride four hours. You know, it's got to be an 80 mile ride or else you're not really trying. And I woke up and got out of bed and drank the coffee, ate the food that I need to eat. And I was just like, you know what? Screw it. I'm done. I'm going to go and do anything other than bikes for this 24, 48 hour period of time. And then I got back up on the bike the next day or two days later, and I had a completely fresh view on life. We have not had the vacations this year because of COVID. There's been no beach, there's been no Europe trip, there's been no Bali, there's been no nothing. I'm just throwing out random places right now because I've never gone snorkeling in Bali, but like the value of doing just absolutely nothing as an athlete. The rest is like, is underrated and there's a lot of studies and there's a lot of like, if you look back at WKO is really the only way to do this, but if you look back years and years and years, you can, most people, you can start actually seeing higher numbers when there's better training, when there's better rest, whether that's like more downtime or not, it's hard to say that's kind of athlete to athlete. Um, but I think people get really, really focused and then they sort of like maintain 90 CTL for a 12 month period. And that's not necessarily like the best way to get fast compared to sort of polarizing it more and having really strong rest periods. And there's so much that happens in your body with that from like hormone regulation, um, which is fat regulation. A lot of people that like are struggling super hard to lose weight, like I will sort of work with them to try and take a week or two off. And then as their hormones get regulated, they can lose weight a lot more easily. So there's a lot of stuff that is way deeper in the physiology realm, but just mentally the mental game is 
no matter what study you're looking at, whether it's like, you know, you can gain 10% in a, you know, a time trial from listening to music you enjoy. So like, there's just these little things that make up way more than the diminishing return 1% on FTP gain that you're looking at in your 10th year of training at an average of 16 hours a week that people sort of look over as something easy to do. But the low hanging fruit is really what you should be grabbing first when you're trying to keep making gains, even in the twilight of your career. So topic number four here, picking races to actually do. A lot of us pick races to focus on or races to do because we don't really think why. In the past, I've focused on going to Green Mountain or I focused on going to Gateway Cup or Intelligentsia or the state championship here in Virginia or Marlboro because I don't know. I really haven't thought that hard about it. I know that if I look at a schedule during the course of like an off season, because this is an obsession of mine and I love planning things, you know, I'll sit there and I'll go, oh my God, Winston-Salem is an awesome race. I've got to go do it. But then like I actually look at Winston-Salem and look at me as an athlete and go, well, I can't do 900 watts for 30 seconds every single lap. This might not be the ideal race for me to pick or to look at. What do you think as far as not necessarily me, but like a hypothetical athlete, what are the things that people should start looking at and thinking about when it comes down to choosing events that they're going to do or events that they're going to focus on? Starting it off with being honest with yourself about how competitive you are or aren't and looking at your goals objectively is a good place to start. So someone that is building their calendar and they're on a USA crit team and they just copy paste the USA crit calendar into their training peaks. That is a place to start, but why do you want to do it like that? Like some races are going to be really hard to get to and they're not somewhere necessarily that you're going to have fun. Like how you described Winston Salem being really, really hard and kind of if you were to choose to go to that race, knowing that you're going to make it a certain number of laps and it's not going to be to the end, if you're going to not be happy with that, then you can sort of pick a race that you're going to have more fun at knowing your competition level and what you're good and what you're bad at. Like from my perspective, it's like every year for the last four or five years, I've been in the top five for USA crits overall. So it's kind of like every year I end up doing halfway decent at Spartanburg and Athens. And then I try to just, you know, some years I'm second, some years I'm like, you know, it's a more of a participation award, but it's like, I feel like I have less choice in what my calendar is on like real pro teams. You're trying to go to every single race you can. I think just being honest with how competitive you are. And if the answer is maybe not competitive enough to force yourself to do the entire series, then you can start to knock off races that you know aren't going to be fun for you or aren't in a fun place and then fill them with races that are historically a lot of fun and then like string them together. So like there's Tulsa and Critnats are like not that far apart. And I at times enjoy the Southeast, at least kind of in more mountainous areas and smaller towns. So like I'm going to string those together and that's going to be a really fun set that I'm looking forward to. And then the, the the calendar just kind of snowballs from there. There's some gravel events that I feel that I can't miss. And then that also leads itself to, well, if I do well here, then I have to sort of 
hit the fork in the road and go a certain direction based on how well I'm doing at certain series or events as well. What about the idea of making money? So you operate on a slightly different level from a lot of other people who are in the bike racing world. Like I go to a bike race and I enter a master's race and I win the master's race. I get 70 bucks or something like that. It's not a lot of money. I certainly appreciate it when I do win because it pays for gas or I drive a Tesla now, so it doesn't pay for gas, but I can be bougie and talk about my Tesla. For you, however, this is a part of your income. This is part of how Zach and, you know, your wife, Whitney, how you guys put food on the table and keep a house over your head. So when it comes down to thinking about races and thinking about money, you know, obviously we have to look at where there is or is not money in crit racing versus gravel or road racing or other races. What are the types of considerations that those who do make money off of crit racing and bikes in general have to think about? That's a great question. I'm probably, I'm getting like more and more jaded on it every time I talk about it with people, but I don't think that there is a lot of living to be made as just a bike racer in the U S right now. I was going to say any more, but like, it's been a few years of like not having that many opportunities to actually make a livable wage. Obviously there's U S based, um, world tour teams and pro continental teams that pay a livable wage. And I think that's great, but it's like, you have a better chance at this point getting into pro baseball at 30 than you do making a livable wage racing domestically. With that said, like my income streams being event promotion, camps, coaching, very diverse. I think if you're trying to make money at just racing and you have the ability to be like self-sufficient and slightly nomadic and make it happen for yourself, at least for, if you're going to try and do it for one or two years and sustain yourself that way, unfortunately you're following the money and the money right now is in the ever expanding gravel frontier. I would like to see that shift back to criteriums more. It is possible, you know, pre COVID, I think that that was somewhat of a movement. I think that crits are highly spectatable. There's a lot of opportunity there. And especially with what USA crits is doing with televising things that opens the door for legitimate advertising. And, and that is just how the money's flowing for spectatable events. So I think that it's possible for like criteriums to have a resurgence like that once you know, we're at a vaccination level and we can actually spectate events. And then if they can actually pull off consistent television behind the events, that's going to be great. I think there's a lot of, you know, pro gravel athletes that are going that direction and it's fun. And I love racing gravel, but it's harder. It's honestly harder. It's harder training. It's harder on equipment. So like, even as someone that is like really, really well supported on the gravel side, it's just a whole nother equation that I'm sort of just mixing in there. So there's a plethora of events and people can, you can string together all these different gravel events and there's a lot more opportunity in that right now. And now we're just, we can get down the rabbit hole of, you know, USAC and, and demise of road racing in the U S and all this stuff. But I, I think there's opportunities on both sides, but making money, especially domestically from just trying to be a bike racer is a really hard equation that sort of ends up getting more and more into the influencer realm than it does racing because that is just 
the path of least resistance, I guess. Um, I wish that brands kind of looked at the difference between an influencer, um, especially just a social media influencer and an actual bike racer or an athlete influencer and kind of separated those more. What do you mean by that? Cause that's, that's next level. I mean, it gets, it gets really complicated. So there's, you know, everything from affiliate links and, you know, a, a really good Instagram influencer like works really hard and they're really good at what they do and they make great content and people follow them. And then they are athletes. I'm not calling them not athletes at all, but it's just sort of different when you're a competitor and you're competing. It's a different type of mindset that's just not as well supported anymore as what it used to be before um, social media existed. Like I can't go do a really solid training week and get good content to be like that sort of Instagram influencer to have success in that, honestly. So I'm kind of, I would rather be a bike racer and sort of have good content as I go and do my best to get, to support the brands that support me. But if I'm looking at road racing too, there's just not a ton of like, you know, where am I going to go? Like if I want to race next weekend, like there's some local Colorado stuff, um, but there's nothing that's necessarily like going to land me different or better support. Let's do the final topic here. And this one's fun because it's a topic that I have talked about extensively at home, never on the show, but it is in defense of the training race in Kansas when I started racing, we had a weekend series. So it ran, I don't know, March 1st, 7th, 14th, you know, for that first month. And it was simple, wide open crits around a state park. Flash forward, you look at something like the driveway series or in, in DC, we've got Greenbelt. But we have a lot of these very simple, almost parking lot crit like training crits in this country where we know that going into it, it is by design, nothing special. And I think that the decline in those has directly impacted the quality of racing for a lot of the amateurs, because now you only end up racing when it's $50 for entry. You only end up racing when it is absolutely perfect. And if you don't do well, you quit the sport and you walk away and you're like, I'm done. I don't need to deal with this. Whereas starting out, I think I paid $5 for an entry to a Lawrence, Kansas bike race. So it was $20 for an entire month of racing. That's like the spring fling crits. Yeah, or the Hincappy series or anything like that. You know, they should be all over the place and they should be more prevalent. Yeah, I think that that is more a um, symptom of like kind of how we were talking about the a decline in a way of road cycling. But I think it's promotership. I think it's that race promotership and kind of a little bit of a decline of, of like pure competition or like a demand for pure competition in that sense. But I blame USAC for a lot, honestly, of, of decline in like lack of help or support for promoters and people kind of don't like cyclists. So like in, in a lot of these scenarios, there's a municipality that's allowing a weekday criterion to happen. The most successful ones 
have a relationship with private property or on private property, you know, Andrew Willis's driveway series is on a, on a private racetrack. So they don't affect, you know, the Austin city streets whatsoever. Uh, Fort Collins has the um, city streets crit, which is in the city streets department. And I've heard the city streets people just talk crap about it. So like, I think it's just really, really easy for people to say no, but it's not a decline of participation in cycling, which I find super interesting. So the next level down from those weekday crits, which I totally agree are fun and disappearing and that's unfortunate, but you know, fight club for cycling is the weekday group ride, the Haynes point in DC, the Tuesday, Thursday ride in Fort Collins or um, like the Tuesday stages ride. Like there are, fast weekday group rides all over the country and the participation in those is growing. So maybe the demand will come back for a pure competition in a closed course. Maybe as there's more accidents, which I think we can all agree that there's kind of more, you know, car cyclists interactions that are negative that might drive demand for more closed course racing and therefore promoters will step up. But yeah, I just don't see the promoters the people that used to promote races don't promote them anymore. And those races just die and no one steps up and goes like, Oh, a free weekend to promote a road race or a crit. I'm going to step up and do it. Like, it just seems like, Oh, that race is gone. And then it's kind of like another one bites the dust. And then there's a hole in the calendar and then people will show up to their, their fight club rides. What could USAC, BRAC, MABRA, the local associations across this country do to help encourage this to help get these fundamental things back. Cause we had Quicksilver and trade zone two early season series that vanished one because the road just fell apart and they never bothered to repair it. Uh, you know, there's nothing that Mabra can do there unless they're going to, you know, put out money for road construction and repair, which would be strange, but you know, finding, these types of events and bringing them back or, or having new ones come in their place. What are things that can be done by those people who are governing bodies? I think like step one is clean it up, keep it simple, lower the barrier to entry. I pay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars to USAC every single year between my coaching license, my racing license, and it's gone up, you know, it's tripled since I was a kid. Right. So like, I don't think that it's reasonable for like me to necessarily have to pay $500 to be a coach. They're like, what I get in return isn't there. Um, So as far as a race promoter goes, the reason that there's all these gravel races happening, the reason that I'm not USAC sanctioned as a gravel race is because I don't get any return from sanctioning that. So if you want to have a weekday crit, Greenbelt used to be ABC. BRAC enforces certain categories and enforce certain fees to have a race. Like, I don't think it should be the wild west. I'm not saying that like everything should be free whatsoever, but if all these fees are kind of inflated and there's not a whole lot of return, then the barrier to entry is too high. If you want to get into cycling and you want to do your first race uh, on the road, it's likely going to be sanctioned. And now you're a cap five and you have to buy a license or a one day license. That's going to be the first you know, way that you're just not going to show up. You're going to keep riding at Haynes and race people at Haynes. Uh, There's just so many barriers to entry and there's so much complicated hoops to jump through to be able to do a race. 
there's guys in Colorado that wanted to, that did the master's race and wanted to race the, um, pro one, two race to race their second race. And they had cash in hand to pay a couple weekends ago. Um, and they said, Oh, no, pre-reg only. It's not full. One guy jumped into the race anyway with a number and now they're trying to sanction him. So it's like, what, what actually is like going on here? Like it's a local race. The guy, you won't take his money. And so he's going to jump in and like, now he's probably not going to raise you sec anymore. Congrats. Like you pushed him out. So like, it's just kind of like all these barriers to entry combined to me are like just funny. And then it's still supply and demand in a way. Like when you're looking at your organization, you're like, man, we're really running low on membership. What's going on? Isn't cycling participation higher than ever? Yeah, it is. They're not giving you their money because it's your website's down. Or like I go to the legacy website to pay. I don't know how to do it even. Like I just, you know, clean it up, lower the barrier to entry. And then you're going to have a base of bike racers again. Some of those bike racers will move up. Some of them will be cat three for life. There were like, that was some of the most fun I ever had in bike racing was moving through the ranks at NCBC and being on the cat three team with guys that were self-confident having fun at bike racing. And they knew that they weren't and didn't want to become cat twos, but that just doesn't, that doesn't exist anymore. Well, Zach, thank you so much for being on the show again and asking, answering all of our questions. <laughs> I feel like I need to drink some positive juice or something first. <laughs> so I'm just less curmudgeoning. Um, but no, this is really fun. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the show. Today's show was written, produced, and edited by me, Rob Kelly. We are a proud member of the Wide Angle Podium Network of Shows, the world's only collection of top-tier independent cycling content. Head on over to WideAnglePodium.com to find out more about the full lineup of shows there. We are going to be off for the next two weeks, but we will be back May 19th. We've got a special episode with um, checking notes. Uh, wow. We will actually be talking about bike racing real criterium racing happening in the united states it is our 2021 preview show in which we break down what's going to happen at usa crits we're going to break down what's going to happen at nationals armed forces all of it come back you're going to want to hear it celine oberholzer is going to be here so will alan schroeder we're going to be doing real race coverage this is so super exciting it has been a long time coming so, we'll see you back here for more stories from our Criterium Nation. The Slow Ride Podcast, three idiots who are usually wrong. The Slow Ride Podcast, the titanium of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast. It's like if David Vanderpool had a podcast. The Slow Ride Podcast, the Zwift racing of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, find the real advice. The Slow Ride Podcast. 
the Arrow Helmet of Podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, sport leader coming through. The Slow Ride Podcast. When's Lance going to sue us? The Slow Ride Podcast, the experts in French cycling. The Slow Ride Podcast, official fan experience zone on Facebook. The Slow Ride Podcast, the gravel bike of podcasts. The Slow Ride Podcast, both vertically and horizontally compliant. The Slow Ride Podcast. New episodes every Tuesday.